0: Okay, I have a very important question. The beverage you just drank is that tea or coffee? <gasps> it's cinnamon tea.
1: Mm. I don't know what makes it tea. Like what makes tea coffee? Like this is cinnamon tea, but there's no tea in it. Like
2: Te- technically, it's a tazane, If you want, if we want to ah, play that I, game. Yeah. Actually,
1: I do. That's actually useful knowledge. I was gonna go on a Twitter
2: rant. Oh oh no i'm so sorry i didn't i please have the twitter rant i I no no this this reminds me of a
1: time where i uh you know when you go to i went to a stand-up comedy gig when i was about 19 in cardiff and there was this this kind of uh, interactive experimental comedian and he said some things in life don't have a name Uh, and then he proceeded to list things and one of the things he listed was those little covers you get to put on takeout coffee cups and i was actually they're I was in the audience and I don't know what possessed me because I'm the last person I want to be called that in the <laughs> audience, right? And something just came over me and I said, actually, they're called Java Jackets. And, <laughs> and from that point on, he picked on me and he made me get up on stage. And, I, you know, I deserved I, it. I deserved it. Oh, God. I deserved it.
2: <laughs> First of all, amazing that you know the knowledge. Second of all, brave, brave. I just learned it.
1: I just learned it. I'd been in the US that summer and I heard someone say Java jacket. And I was using my new knowledge, showing off, I guess.
2: Wow.
0: <laughs> I was
1: on a date. I was on a date as well, so maybe I wasn't trying. To there you go. Day. There you go. Oh, there it Please is. Please tell me. Yeah. Please tell me you
0: adjusted your glasses before you said it. It's you're just, like, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, of me, course. Yeah, yeah. Actually,
1: uh, actually. <laughs> I was like, the room. The room fell silent, and I interjected <laughs> arrogantly.
2: Well, it's Gosh. it's okay to interject when you're right, but he, right. I taught
1: him something new. I taught him <laughs> exactly right. I was like, "Excuse me, you're wrong."
3: <laughs> As a matter of fact.
2: Oh, uh, it's it's like the first time. It's the first. Time, it's like the first time I learned like the plastic bit at the end of shoelaces. It's like oh, yeah. actually that's called an aglet. A what? A an, an aglet. aglet. An aglet. <laughs> yeah, a g l e t. The useless knowledge continues.
1: <laughs> what about the top? The top bit of an umbrella.
3: Oh. Oh, I have
2: no idea. That's the uh, n- n- the tappy bit. <laughs> When you get the it helps you get the rain off.
1: It's for rules. Uh for rules? I don't know how you pronounce it.
2: F-E-R-R-U-L-E-S. For rules. Yeah. Oh wow. A, wow. For rule. What what is its function? I am just like this is the whole episode.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like mark you for rule. So you're throwing <laughs> it again.
3: And then there's different <laughs> kinds of umbrellas and they all have different names.
1: Oh, Really? Oh yeah. I mean I know there's different shapes. I don't know the names of them. I'm not I'm not like yeah. a, a savant for Apparently
3: umbrellas. if your if your right, is flat, then it's usually a case of, it's usually called a telescopic umbrella. Oh, Are you for Because it's, it's a yeah, yeah. Google bit and everything <laughs> Google doesn't lie. Truly.
2: I am blessed to have you here.
1: We'll get taken off air i think uh, for this many know,
3: no, and no and i don't think so you know what's interesting that ahmed always um not you don't complain about but you're just like it's unfortunate is whenever he does actually play trivia none of the nonsensical information he has comes up Absolutely so he has not. like a trivia mind that can never be. Used. Like used in trivia I have a, a,
2: so much crazy. useless information that could help people, but trivia always is like well, who married who in nineteen fifty. It's like I Yeah, t- I'm with you that all sports nothing.
1: questions. Like who who wants to know that? Like, you know right. who won yeah, the right. NHL like that's not even a sport, right? Right. Uh, no, it's in, just like... in, in... And the answers the answer's never Wayne Gretzky and that's the only hockey <laughs> player I know.
0: <laughs> like, the okay. sports commentators they come out they come out with the most <laughs> random statistics sometimes. Uh, Wayne Gritzky, the first player to shoot whilst on his head with his left arm whilst holding yeah, a kick. Yeah, exactly. It's like why? Why is that? <laughs> but, a they thing? Pre-
1: but they always preface it with interesting fact. An interesting fact for you, and I was like, I'll be the judge of that.
0: Yes, <laughs> <'Cause it's laughs> boldly not assuming. Wait <laughs> yeah, a minute, <laughs> Mark. Is that what you said to the comedian? Interesting fact.
1: <laughs> After pushing out the glasses, I was like, "Excuse me, sir. I have an interesting fact." I was very, po- I was very respectful. <laughs> I him, sir. And I doffed my top hat that I was wearing.
3: <laughs>
2: <laughs> I've just, I have this. What people wearing Britain. No doubt, actually. That was the picture I had. Every British citizen has a top hat that they wear out to their comedy shows. Like, Don't tell them all our
0: secrets, got... Mark. <laughs>
2: Sorry. Sorry. It's out. It's out.
0: So guys, I don't know if you've noticed. If you were to look at the window beneath you, we have a special guest. It's another human other than you
3: two. Yay!
1: (laughs) Can I say hey? I don't know the rules. (laughs) There there are no
0: (laughs) rules. The only rule is that there are no rules. On today's show, we are honored and blessed to have the one and only... (laughs) I'll tell you useless trivia, Mark Owen Jones.
2: Wow. Yeah.
0: wow. Small <laughs> request. I, I guess you could put in the
1: canned applause after the intro. And, yeah. yes. Of course. Oh yeah, God. no. It, the the, the, Listen, wi- the b- crowd's going to go wide. Yeah, okay. Just, just so people understand. It's going to be a laughter track all the way through. Right, right, right. Even now. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I was like they're laughing I haven't even started. Your <laughs> reputation precedes you. <laughs> <laughs> well it's it's great to be on on your podcast everyone um it's uh, the honor is all mine uh Ramadan Kareem for those celebrating. Ramadan Kareem those who are not celebrating. Check.
2: To everybody. Yeah. <laughs> everyone. Get, you get some Ramadan. If you're
1: yeah, not yeah, yeah. get with it. <laughs> yeah. Just enjoy it. have a nice month, you know. What's
2: wrong yeah. with that? Yeah. No, what, uh, you can have a good time anytime. Um I actually so I'll, I'm going to roll back to something that I, like, had said when we were still, like, planning the interview. Um, I noticed that your initials, MOJ. Um, oh, God. <laughs> I have to get it out of me as soon as possible. It is like a fire inside me. Um, but, but MOJ, okay, so, like, I was thinking Dr. Moj and... Um, and I don't know if if that's applicable. Dr. Wave, Dr. Moja, you know, like kind yeah, of put yeah. a little bit of Arabic <laughs> wave into there. I don't know if you've ever gotten that, but I'd love to call you Dr. Wave for the rest of the episode. Is that like a yes, no? Is that a... You can call we me... Uh, uh,
1: well, I mean, I don't mind being Dr. Wave. It's better than <laughs> Dr. Jones for obvious reasons. Dr. Jones. Um, Dr. Jones. Oh, there you go. You that. Jones, yeah, exactly. Thanks, for Uh you can, you can play that song now if you get the copyright. But yeah, that was... Uh, I had to endure that for some time. If, if your mm-hmm. listeners remember the Aqua song from the 90s, Dr. Yes. Jones. It's highly annoying. <laughs> um, so, yeah, Wave is better than that. Although Dr. Jones was also Indiana Jones. He was Dr. Jones, which is a Indiana kind of Jones. cool Dr. Jones,
2: right? Mm-hmm. And you're kind of in that same space. <laughs> I like to think that I'm, you know, apart from
1: the... the I, don't, I, don't, I don't hate snakes, so I guess I'm kind of braver than he is. But, um, there you, better
2: you go. go. Better looking, for sure. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to
1: say I'm cooler than, than Indiana Jones. But <laughs> You've heard
3: some might someone say that. it to you <laughs> Yeah,
1: There <laughs> was utterances, you know. And, and someone did write love on the eye, 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 uh, eyelid. And, uh, you know, yeah. So that happened to Dr. Wow. Jones. It happened to me. It didn't actually happen. <laughs> <What? to clarify. laughs> so
2: f- fake news. Fake news. <laughs>
1: I wish it did. I wish it did. But that is yet
2: to had I known, we probably we we all would have closed the episode with that for mm. sure. We would exactly. have all closed our eyes together and had a love for you, Doctor Jones. <laughs> Wait, Gosh. so d- would Mark or Doctor Mark, Doctor Jones? Which Dr. is uh, what would be kind of like Dr. best? Doctor Moj, Doctor Banana was another one. Moza, uh, um, Moza. No, yeah.
1: Well, that's uh, no. That,
2: that's, uh, a, that's a whole um, thing. D- the <laughs> oh, is
1: it? I don't. I don't want to go down that road. Yeah, yeah. It's. it's uh, Whoa!
0: Oh, it's, I think. I think you've just uh, opened Pandora's I box, f- there, Ahmed. You, you opened it. F- there like, was a door.
3: <laughs> I feel like there is a slight at the end of this road that we like. It's just calling for us to go down. So, well,
0: off depends. the record. I mean,
3: I
1: don't. I don't know if it's. Uh, yeah, I don't know if it's a, a, a relevant theme for your podcast. It's just that. So obviously, Moza is banana, and sh- the Sheikh Moza in Qatar, where I live and where Mohammed lives, is strangely enough, since 2017, since the crisis, there's been a like a. Uh, a lot of misogynistic language uh, directed at her. And so the whole banana uh, emoji thing has been used a lot in relation to her name. And it's been very strange because, again, this is, like I said, I think it's off-piste for what you guys are talking about, but uh, I think 2017 broke a lot of the social norms uh, that you see a lot in, in in the region, in the Gulf. And then people were happily uh, like using this kind of language to kind of berate uh, Sheikha Moza, who's like a public figure here. So it's it's a it's a strange word in Qatar, but there's like <laughs> there's a kind of connotations to
2: it. Oh, right. No, and I, I honestly, I don't think it's f- too far off topic. Okay. So one of the other episodes we're kind of recording is um, a little bit. Um, around kind of the legislation that's been passed recently in the Senate in France and kind of talking about reactions to that and, um, next step. So we kind of touch on that stuff. I think it's like, it's an interesting kind of, and it, and it ties directly to kind of your, stu- your, your area of study, you know, like you know, yeah, specifically yeah. like studying Twitter bots kind of in the Gulf region, studying kind of like social propaganda social and, and I, I, all really interesting. Yeah. So I, I totally think that's...
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a strange thing. Like it's a, I think I, a lot of people in the region were surprised by, by the fact that this kind of language was being yeah. used uh, so openly. Do you know by whom? Well, I mean, sometimes it is these unknown accounts, but um, I mean, there's one particular Twitter account that has become notorious. Uh, which is a UAE-based account, UAE underscore um, three G. Uh, I think it's, I think it's, I can't remember his first name. It's uh, something Mazarori. but um, yeah, he's he's been reported countless times he, by every Qatari, I think he
0: even has his full name on there.
1: Uh, yeah, I believe so, but no one's one hundred percent sure who he is. Um, there's Ooh. all sorts of rumors as to who runs the account, but yeah, Ooh. he's 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 been the strange. I mean, again, I, I again, I don't want to get too sidetracked. For, I don't you to sidetrack you guys. No, it is fine. If you, were to, if you were to say that there's a very particular... Like, okay, so using, making fun of the Sheikha Moza and using the term banana is quite esoteric. She's not the ruler of the country. Mm. Uh, she's known because of her role in this educational foundation called Qatar Foundation. We wouldn't say she's that prominent in particular. Yet for trolls to suddenly attack her because uh, you know, she was connected to the previous ruler is really bizarre. So if anyone else p- picks up that language then it's also strange. Mm. There was this whole strange thing. I, I, remember, you know, I don't know if you remember, while Ghanim, the, the Egyptian, um, he, he became very well-known at the beginning of the Arab uprisings in 2011. Uh, he created the page, page Facebook page, We Are All Khaled uh which became mm. really well-known, and he became like a figurehead of the Egyptian uprising. And then suddenly, at the beginning of last year, I know he's had some health problems. He started obsessively tweeting about Qatar, but also talking a lot about Sheikh Hamoza, and it's like, how? Why is this guy who suddenly? Why is she the focus? Yeah. But yeah, why is he talking about it? Which was odd. And then, you know, there was it. It didn't seem to make sense. So I, I don't know. It's um, yeah. Obviously, as someone who studies disinformation, it makes me wonder if there's like these kind of networks of people who, who engage in this kind of rhetoric and and they're all kind of connected. I don't know. But yeah, it's a random aside about
2: bananas. So, <laughs> <laughs> No, that, I mean, Speaking an, an educational and pertinent aside.
0: <laughs> In short, that's a hard no to Dr. Mo, uh, this, Dr. Uh, Moj. Yeah. Da,
2: da. <laughs> I'm just saying. You might confuse No, no, you know. we're off that. We're off that All for right, sure. So,
3: Dr. Moj <laughs> or Dr. Wave, it is. Got it.
2: Yeah, Dr. Wave.
1: When I ask students to introduce themselves in class, I always tell them to say a funny or interesting story. And the one that I say, which I think encapsulates my growing up is, is uh, I was, so I've been issued a gas mask in my lifetime. Um, The the reason being is because I I lived in Bahrain during the the, 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 the 1990 Gulf War. Uh, And so everyone who lived there was issued gas mask and we had to do a number of things. We had to, uh, we had to leave our televisions on because when there was a scud missile warning they would flash red there was the air raid sirens we had to tape up our windows and we had these water filtration kits and when we went to school we had to go with our gas masks and our water filtration kits and when there was an air raid wow. we'd hide under we'd, we'd taught to hide under the desks, so, which wow. i guess wouldn't we have done much you know especially from <laughs> chemi- chemical weapons but um right yeah, yeah those old really hard <laughs> desks but i always thought it was funny because when you uh, when you're a young kid, right, the, the gas masks don't look like you see in the cartoons. They're like the adult gas masks, you know, the black one right. yeah. put on the face. Um the kids' one were like this very thick, clear uh plastic with an elasticated neck and like a battery pack for the, the breathing apparatus. Oh, wow. And so you, it's it was it was I and and the thing I used to do, I used to cry putting my gas mask on. I hated it because you know, it was a time where you're a kid. They teach you not to put plastic bags on your head because you might suffocate. I don't know if you... Uh, right. you we've all had that lesson, right? Yep. And then suddenly yep. you, you need one to breathe. I thought there was this kind of fascinating irony there, you know? So Iron. that's uh, my it was my introduction to irony was uh, gas masks at an early age. Um, right.
0: Ah, <laughs> oh, so lighthearted. Yeah, I know, right? It's, uh, kind,
2: well, I- kind of funny. I don't... <laughs> No, I I take it. It's kind of it's it's like uh, all right. So in order to make it through this calamity, please press a pillow against your face and be breathe deeply. It's gonna be <laughs> exactly, fine. Exactly, it's gonna be fine. Exactly.
1: We've put the uh, smelling salts in this pillow. Just gonna stick <laughs> <laughs> it.
2: Just like it's fine. Everything's fine. You won't feel
1: a thing. <laughs> oh God. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure there's many more funny stories. Uh, that, uh, yeah, it depends on the context, you know. I could give you the classic. People ask me if I went to work on a camel.
2: Yeah uh we, I, well, we from texas we get that but on horse
1: everyone's been no, asked
2: that i think when our first episode uh we saw uh talked about how when she came to the states people would ask her it's like so do you guys have like campbell parking lots or something like where do you put your camels when you're going around like, yeah. it's just like
3: no it was more along the lines of like so like does everybody ride camels there? And I'm just like, yeah, we even have camel parking lots outside of the supermarket, like right up there, up front, right next to the handicap. Ironically, yeah, exactly. Handicaps, um, but um, <laughs> whole other thing. Like, whole other thing.
1: It's kind of hard to get on a camel if you're handicapped.
2: Right, for right? sure. <laughs> they don't come Which on is, wheels.
3: It's funny because yeah. like Ahmed was saying that in um, p- because he's from Texas, so people assume that everybody rides horses there in montana that stereotype is true though <laughs> the other day my dad sent us a video of like this guy showing up to walmart on his horse and then like
2: tying it up up front yeah
3: you know g- went grocery shop and they came back out to his got
2: horse. your saddlebags <laughs>
3: so it's like actually a very normal thing over there that's um, that's great
1: but i've never seen anyone go to work on a camel yet yeah never no, no. i'm yet no. to see that uh it's possible
0: uh you clearly don't know the right locals. <laughs>
1: yeah, I did see a I did see a guinea fowl on the run the other day. A guinea fowl? Yeah, well three guinea fowls actually were on the loose.
2: Well, I have no idea what that is. Is that like a It's like a, a it looks like a turkey.
1: Of... It looks like a turkey. Oh,
0: I was literally about to say type of turkey.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You would be right. Wait,
0: there are there are guinea fowls in Doha?
1: They belong to a guy called Mr. Kim, a Korean chap who lives a few doors down. Oh, and he keeps them. Honey. Yeah, it's uh it's unusual.
0: That's so random.
1: <laughs>
3: Oh, speaking of turkeys, we went on a walk this morning, and if you gobble gobble at the turkeys, they will one hundred and fifty-six percent gobble gobble
1: <laughs> back at you.
2: It was, uh, it was I did true. it
3: multiple times. Have it on video. <laughs> I can share it. It's the thing.
1: But did you try it with anything other than gobble? Because maybe it's like false positive.
2: No, no we we did lie. not apply research methods. <laughs> yeah.
0: I, I, just I have a like problem. I need. It. I have a few questions about your methodology. No. You're embarrassing me in front of my friend. You're meant to be academic.
2: <laughs> We've been funded by Big Turkey, so we have to <laughs> yeah, say yeah, that they always yeah, exactly. answer. <laughs> Man, I hate those Big
1: Turkey guys. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly a foul
2: situation. Uh, 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 if I had a, if I had a guinea every time I heard that joke. Oh, oh. Oh. <laughs> oh nailed it.
3: Welcome to Third Culture Block, a place where we have conversations about everyday experiences that shape the stories in our corner of the human narrative. I'm Waisal Jibreel.
0: I'm Ahmed Mustafa. I'm Mohammed Ismail. And I'm Mark Owen-Jones. Oh, per- oh man! Hey, oh, one hit a he went. He Kuch- went for the,
2: full, oh. name. It's the full name, he did it with his podcast voice. <laughs> you
1: know.
3: So speaking of Mark and his background, tell us a little about yourself, Sir Mark, Sir Mark Owen Jones.
1: Well, like where I'm from, where I grew up, kind of thing.
2: I think honestly. uh like for the like the podcast, we, we interview just a bunch of creative people. We interview a lot of T C K people. Um, and so just kind of looking at your, your bio, which like we've poured over extensively, it seems like you've been all around the world growing up, like and touched all sorts of countries. So
1: Yeah, I can give you uh, my I can give you my T C K spiel. Uh which yeah. I, there you go. I've got it I've got it pretty well done so people ask ask me where I'm from.
2: Where,
0: where are you where, from, where, Mark? where, so where are you Jones? from, well, I, Owen Jones? I'm glad you asked. Um, uh, it's Sir. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh God, Mark Owen Jones, yes. Yes. I've been knighted. Psh, honestly, these guys. So what the hell is the, Mark? Sh- the spiel is as
1: follows. Uh, I was born in London, London, England. I uh, feel like I have to add that. Um, and then uh, what did I do after that? I was about a few. I, I was about six months old. <laughs> my family. I was born. I was born. Nothing I, has happened. I did a great job of being born. Um, I can't remember anything <laughs> of that. And then we moved. My family and I um, moved to Saudi Arabia. So my dad, he was a chemical engineer uh, from South Wales, uh, hence the Jones. Um, my name is Welsh, uh, mm-hmm. and my mum's from from England. Um, but I identify more with the Welsh side. Um, I'll, get okay, <laughs> yeah, I'll, get, yeah. I'll get to that bit later. I was going to ask that actually. Yeah, I'll get I'll get to that bit later because it's very it's very arbitrary, uh, kind of. Um, so, yeah, we moved to Saudi Arabia in about 1986 uh, and then lived there for about three years in Yanbu, which is on the Red Sea coast. Um, so not in uh, not in the eastern province, in like Daran, which is where a lot of people live when they live in Saudi, who are expats. Uh, and then lived there for a bit. I don't remember a great deal about living in Saudi, apart from I used to live next to a guy who would put a paper bag on his head and run around. Um, that's literally it. Oh. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I know. <laughs> it's a very strange memory. And I actually remember I remember playing in the Red Sea and picking up hermit crabs. That was kind of cool. Um but that's that's Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> that's pretty much it. And and actually no, we you know like yeah and yeah photos of my family on the beach. Um we used to go to the beach a lot. There wasn't much to do, I'll be honest with you. Um and then uh, in about 88 we moved to Bahrain where um yeah where you know, we got there just in time for the first Gulf War or the second Gulf War, depending how you define it. Um, yeah, like
2: you went there for the war, or was I, yeah, it just we kind were like We were too far away
1: from the war, so we wanted to uh, get a, a bit closer gotcha, to the action, right. right? You know, gotcha. <laughs> you
2: know, I mean, you know, you got those people, you know, tornado chasers. So yeah, exa- just gotta, exactly. Gotta clarify. Exactly.
1: <laughs> no, so yeah, I think I think it was just you know the, um, you know, my it, obviously Saudi is 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 very different from Bahrain, and my dad had an interview in Bahrain, and it was it's just a more uh, i think lively place for for someone like him and my mum who had grown up in the uk and there was a great community there in the town of awali which is which like the, the kind of one of the first oil towns in 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 the gulf region um so yeah from about 1988 we, we lived in awali and it was i went to primary school there um briefly going to the uk uh, at the end of the gulf war And there's this kind of irony lots of people left because of the gulf war but because the war was so short by the time everyone arranged to leave, the war had ended. So, so, uh,
2: so she's like, uh, oh well. So I, I went
1: to school in the UK at the end of uh, during primary school, but like after the Gulf War, but because of the Gulf War, um, then went back to Bahrain. <laughs> um, did most of my primary school there, and then briefly went to the UK for 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 the end for the last year of primary school, and then I did a year of boarding school, which I hated, uh, and then went back to Bahrain for most of secondary school, where I did my GCSEs, which are like exams that you do in the UK when you're about 16. And then I went to, and I went back to boarding school um, for my A-levels, which (laughs) is high high school or like uh, when you're 17 and 18, you can translate this for the US audience um yeah of course <laughs> yeah of course That's the equivalent. high high school what's middle school what's a middle school <laughs> uh, uh high, it's a thing middle school <laughs> I, I don't know we, I, we
2: have, it's when it's when you go upstairs in the elementary school building oh uh, okay when, right, right when you're in elementary school but you get to go upstairs yeah i just
1: associate with the films where you know kids go and on the first day they get bullied and pushed into a locker uh, or maybe that's high school. No, yeah, 100%. no, that's
2: Factually. that's every kid. Oh, Actually, okay. that's, that's <laughs> middle school until high school.
1: Yeah, that's when your backpack is bigger than you still. Um, you're still going into it. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah.
2: you taste toilet water. It's great. Exactly.
1: Yeah. So <laughs>
2: what?
1: You know, I don't. I'm Mohammed, we need to. You need to be introduced to North American bullying, right? So.
2: Uh, really, really. you <laughs> need to be cultured. Yeah, there's there's
1: no North American-style bullying in my boarding school, although boarding schools are noted for specific forms oh, wow. of, of bullying.
0: It's a lot of hazing as well in boarding schools. So, yeah, right?
1: usually there is. I mean, I just I, I went to this boarding school for two years in Cheltenham, uh, but a, a group of us actually from Bahrain, we went there, and, and there was a f- kind of funny third culture reflection. So about seven of us from Bahrain, we all went to the same school called St. Christopher's in Bahrain, and then we went to the same boarding school in the UK in Cheltenham. And it was quite funny. I remember a a bunch of kids saying to us, like you guys from, you guys from Bahrain are really strange. And I thought, what what do you mean really strange? Yeah. It wasn't being racist or anything. Like (laughs) we were quite an eclectic eclectic bunch. So it's like, yeah, it's it's strange. It's like you're five years older than everybody else. I was like, oh, interesting. And (laughs) yeah, it was, you know, I, I suppose there was, when I look back on it, it makes more sense because I think again, you know, right. one of the mm-hmm. one of the aspects of being a, a TCK or third culture kid, certainly for many of us, maybe not all of us, is that there is this kind of maturity that comes with uh, having that exposure to 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 multiple you know people from multiple backgrounds when you're young, and I think that's part of it, and being yeah. travelled uh, for a large part of that. Right. So I always remember yeah, that, that, was...
2: that life can be very different than what yeah. you expect. Yeah, right?
1: exactly. And I thought that was quite an interesting observation from one you guys are older than everyone else. I was like, I can assure you, we're the same age. Um,
2: <laughs> my good lad. <laughs> it's like,
1: my dear friend. Why are you talking like I that? Was like, I was overcompensating.
0: Now let me tell you about shoelaces.
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I like, I think you're fine with the same age. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, so I remember doing my A levels, and you know, I, I kind of had this. Uh, you know, I don't know if I'm reflecting too much, but I think that was an interesting time for me. I remember going to boarding school. Being, I was about 17, and obviously, as a teenager, uh, I think every third culture kid has that a moment where they suddenly realize or they kind of question their own identity. Um, and I, I remember feeling I went through a, a resentment phase, I think when I was about 17, because I'd come to the UK and the reason I'd come to the UK is because it was very common for people who had British passport holders in Bahrain to spend about two years prior to university in the UK, because it gave them home status in terms of, uh, mm-hmm. Studying, right? So you didn't have to pay international fees, or at least that was the—that's the, right. the, what we were told. I think our parents just wanted to get rid of us. But um, so <laughs> <laughs> which is fine. um So yeah, whatever, yeah.
2: whatever works, whatever works, exactly, exactly. <laughs>
1: um, and so you know, we were sent there, and and then there's that realization, you know, when you're seventeen, eighteen, that you you're now in the UK as a British passport holder. Your sort of destiny, to quote unquote, is to then go to university in the UK, and then your life. Starts probably in the UK, right? So there's this kind of moment when you're thinking, oh, so I, all my life, I've, I've grown up somewhere else in Bahrain and Saudi, and now I'm expected to be a UK guy, <laughs> British dude. Uh, right. Such a British guy. <laughs> Uh, with my top hat and No, I, and.
2: Of course, of course. And so there was
1: this. Watch, and, watch. And, uh, yes. Watch. And I, uh, the question about, you know, I mentioned about someone saying, oh, you guys from Bahrain, like five years older, it, you know, there was obviously a series of events that made me think there is something different about me and, and my other friends from everyone here. And, you know, I was starting to, and the resentment initially came from, oh, I resented the fact that I'd had to have that experience growing up because now I don't fit into where I'm expected to belong bureaucratically, you know. This is my right. passport country, and this is where I'm uh, yeah. resigned to I uh, work as Bob Cratchit counting coins or whatever happens in the UK. Um,
2: and right, of course, <laughs> I told you stop telling them everything about yeah, us. Know, exactly. we're <laughs>
3: learning so much. Mohammed never told us these secrets.
2: Yeah, <laughs> I, I learned about your quid the other day. Don't don't think you can pull. You don't have coins. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> quid?
1: <laughs> like, uh, yeah. Sh- sh- what's it? What's it? What's the other Shilling. One? Shilling. Yeah, that's
2: yeah. Uh, i was i uh, was
1: doomed yes. to toil for shillings in uh, a, a dingy <laughs> cold and poorly lit basement in london um no uh, leather yeah exactly having... musty <laughs> smells mannequins with no clothes mm. on dust hanging in the air that kind what? of thing <laughs> i don't know this is this is how i imagined miss havisham's house <laughs> yeah no I, I,
2: I, I was right there with you <laughs> okay right. forget arrests. this interview
0: Forget this interview. I have so Tell many questions more. right now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> story <laughs> story to Have you not been to London? So,
2: <laughs> apparently not. Yeah, exactly. Cheshire Shire is a whole other place.
0: <laughs> also known as Chesterfield. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I, Ch- I, It's not even <laughs> Cheshire. It's Cheshire Shire. <laughs> yeah. The Shire of Cheshire.
2: <laughs> Where's Cheshire sauce? You know. That's the uh, uh, yeah.
1: Well, I was. My boarding school was actually in the hardest to pronounce county, which is Gloucestershire. But you know the one that's spelled G L O U C E S T E R S H I R E. Ah, yeah. the yeah.
2: beginning had too many vowels, so they decided to throw in a lot of consonants towards the uh, Yeah,
1: exactly. They like just to balance, balance it out. It okay. Out. But yeah, so <laughs> makes sense. Back to my resentment.
0: Uh, <laughs> Please <laughs> no. Back no. to my
1: resentment, born of 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 my my new destiny in life, which was to be British, uh, or at least that was what mm-hmm. expected to me. I had that brief period of resentment. I don't know if it was, it was fairly brief, I think, you know, and then because you're sort of adjusting and trying to fit in, I mean, that's so much of what uh, your school is about anyway, right? You are adapting to neuro surroundings and as third culture kids, we have a way of adapting and we're pretty good at it. But I think, you know, if you're reflective on it, you sort of think, Oh, I am adapting. You notice that you're adapting. You don't just adapt. And I think when you become conscious of that adaptation, you start to think, Oh, maybe there is something different. me. Why am I doing this? Uh, You know, why do I, feel like i have different opinions on 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 these things I i kind of went through that resent phase and then i I can't remember exactly when it happened but it just reached a point i think after about a year of being in the uk where i was like you know i i I, i'm not you know i'm not British it became okay you know when people ask me where i'm from to give this spiel that i'm still giving to you guys um (laughs) you know which is which is why they hated me because i just talked all the time no (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs> but, uh, it was, you know, to give this long spiel. Long story
0: short, sure, that's why I'm a professor today. Yeah, so. exactly.
2: So, <laughs> so, so um, they had their captive audience. Cut to the chase, right?
0: Yeah,
1: and I, I think it just infused. You know, I had this uncertainty, and that, uh, you know, carried on through everything in my life. I, I, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I think I was still wrestling with who I wanted to, who I was as a person. Um, and, you know, I, it just kind of, I felt very unsettled. You know, I, I realized I was surrounded by kids in school who had had a kind of destiny maybe from their parents from a young age, like you will be a doctor or you will go to Oxford and do chemistry. And I, obviously some TCKs have that, but I think there's this element of we move around so much. We're not from a fixed place that even our potential jobs or future careers don't seem so fixed. You know, you sort of think, what next? Mm. Uh, and all I knew is that I was going to go to university. yeah. That was it. And, and, and I, I remember having a conversation with my dad because I initially applied to do chemistry. My dad's a chemical engineer, mm-hmm. so I don't know. I was like, you know, honoring my father, Right. Um,
2: the tradition, the trade, the long
1: family tradition, exactly, the long we were, come from generations of chemical engineers um, <laughs> going way back, so I, and I remember sitting with my dad and TGI Fridays. He came to see me and he's like, I don't think you want to do chemistry, Mark. My dad's also called Mark. i kind getting confusing. Mm. Um, and I said, no. And then he said, what do you want to do? And I, I'm like, I have no idea. <laughs> so I, I, he's just like, do something you enjoy. I was like, I don't know what that is. Um, needless to say, this conversation went in circles, um, but I ended up doing, <laughs> I, I ended up just applying to do journalism because I thought "Oh, journalism sounds cool, uh, journalism media. And then I w- I went to uh, Cardiff back to the homeland as it were. And again, this was mm. part of, I think, still trying to attach myself or find my roots. So for me, Going to university was less about what subject they was studying. It was more about trying to root myself in a place. And very strangely enough, I had a very, I had a strong memory of being about 10 and walking through Cardiff University. And I remember asking my dad at the time, oh, what are these buildings? It was really cool. And I was like, oh, this is university. Right. And for some reason in my head, I was like, I'm only going to study at Cardiff University. It was all I wanted to do, which is a really strange thing when I look back. Mm. At it. And then I went there and it was cool. I was close to my Welsh grandfather. So I got to see him. And so I did sort of feel a bit more connected to the place. And I should add that, and, and this is where I identify more with being Welsh than English, is that it's primarily through sport. So, you know, my, when I was very, very young, I think I used to support England, right, when, when there was a sports game. But my dad, like many Welsh people, is a big rugby fan. So Wales is, mm. uh, rugby is huge in Wales, just for some context. Right. And so he'd watch they it. a
0: fantastic team. They do have a they have
1: a great team, you know, for such a small country. Yeah. And so, obviously, as a kid, uh, you know, my dad used to take us to watch rugby, and you know, I think I arbitrarily supported England just because England was like more well known. And then, obviously, right. I could my dad supported Wales, and because I watched rugby with him, it just became a kind of logical thing that I'd support Wales, right? Just as you might support the the sports team of your local town or city, um, right? You know, for sure. so I suppose that kind of Welsh nationalism was kind of socialized through sport and through my father, you know, and, and, and I, I, that was the reason. So I kind of spent some time in Wales connecting with those roots and realized that, you know, there was a lot of the Welsh part of me that I was proud of. And and that's when I started to realize as a critical person that it was stupid to be proud of, to be proud of a nation, if that made sense. Like when, right. when, 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 when people talked about nationalism, I'm like, why am I, why be proud of, uh, of a country? I wasn't, you know, what are people proud of for one, but also, I'm not part of that, you know, I didn't mm. I don't know invent the wheel or the locomotive, yeah. you know <laughs> so so yeah. I was like, oh yeah, Britain home of the locomotive or steam engine or whatever, and I was just like that's literally I connected to it so i I was always already cre- questioning the notion of nationalism, you know, and partly through you know my university education, but I was always a person who questioned things. so the idea of nationalism was always an arbitrary construct to me and i, I and I began to just find things in a place that. I thought were, were interesting in terms of history. So I became very attached to like the kind of socialist communist roots in Wales and my own grand Welsh grandfather was a kind of communist minor and, you know, from a very working class um, background. And I just sort of, you know, I, I, I think for, for me, I, I have this kind of very strong memory of him yelling at the TV because he had really bad hearing towards the end of his life. And so I'd walk down the street and I could hear the TV like blaring from about four houses down and he'd either watch <laughs> like politics or, or sport and I just remember him yelling at footballers because he just said, Oh, they should all be paid the same. Uh and that idea always resonated with me. And uh I was like that idea. And then, you know, oh God, was... the
2: commie <laughs> the commie minor just like they should all
1: yeah, be paid the same. I know, that I like I am I became him. Um
0: so... <laughs> wait a minute, why is it why is it two one? It should be two two. Yeah, exactly. What is going on here? <laughs> should
1: we get the same. But it you know, it, it just got me again I, I think it it made me um more interested in the kind of uh idea of of peoples and ideologies and movements and identity rather than things like nation and state because a nation is a um, you know heterogeneous mass of different people and, and nationalism is often a top-down kind of endeavor right and and so i you know and, and i started to think you know and i think as well and it's when i say i'm not english it's not because i don't like my english side of family i love them but there's always that association again and which i, I think is erroneous that england is more sort of colonial center and i think as as i attached myself more to that welsh side it became a bit more like i feel i can i want to be close to that side because it felt more like you know the kind of uh, counter colonial center if that makes mm. sense uh, but that was just one aspect of it you know because coming out of towards the end of my my degree in wales again raising these issues of identity i was so annoyed that we'd not been allowed to study arabic uh growing up in bahrain like I remember our parents had requested mm. it, but we weren't allowed to study Arabic in school, which is—it's changed now in most Gulf countries. But we, we—you know—from the age of three, we studied French. So all the kind of uh, Arab kids would take Arabic lessons, and all the non-Arabs would go and study French. <laughs> it was this really weird.
0: Wait, what? Yeah, it was. Was that a governmental thing or a school thing?
1: Well, I'm—I'm I'm not sure in retrospect, but um, I think it's something that the government could have legislated against and i think later they did uh i mean my theory is always that it was like some sort of old colonial thing but i think in reality it was probably the fact that a lot of the kids they were going to end up going back to wherever their home country was again inverted commas and so that they wanted to sort of prepare them to learn french you know because even if you're from australia apparently you learn french in school like this is the (laughs) <laughs> you know, it, oh, but, wow. but <laughs> even that is a kind of stupid way of thinking. I mean, it was a British system, so maybe going back to Britain, they expect people to learn right. French. But, like, at the same time, I, I find it hard to reasonably justify why they wouldn't allow people to study Arabic when they were in, uh, you know, a country that's official language is Arabic. It was absurd. So I was, yeah, I, I was, that's so, yeah, it's weird,
2: right? Yeah. So I, I assume that you just had learned Arabic growing up. I mean, I learned and, swear words um... and stuff. Of course. <laughs> it's the first thing you learn in any language. Yeah, right, exactly. But uh, do you think not growing growing up, not learning Arabic in Bahrain kind of is connected to, or uh, I guess, was part of the factor that disconnected you from, you know, having Bahrain and this national identity of being, like, from Bahrain or growing up in Bahrain? Or was it even a contender for kind of identity at the time against, like, this expectation of being, uh, I am UK man.
1: <laughs> yeah i am uk man with a top hat i'm um,
2: UK man well, with the
1: top hat. yeah i think i mean i like the way you put it there i think but yeah because at this point clearly there was something in me that was coming to terms with my identity right the exploration of welsh stuff then this sudden desire to learn arabic well not a sudden desire this kind of resentment again i feel like a lot of my moments are fueled with resentment uh resentment that i had not <laughs> that i had not um that we weren't allowed to study Arabic. It was it was a really strange thing for me, but this was a really mm. overwhelming desire, like came from within. And it's it's very strange because there's very few things in life that I think have driven me to take certain courses of action um, that have really defined my life. Right? Like I said to you at 18, I didn't I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I knew that I wanted to go to Cardiff and be in Wales and study. And then the next thing I knew right. in life was um, I need to learn Arabic. That was that was just super clear for me. Um, and so I think this is, you know, for me, this is what I'm getting at. And this will hopefully answer your question going through it. Because this is the pro- this was the process, right? This is the process of coming to terms with my, my upbringing and de- determining that. Oh, yeah, it's okay to say that I'm from Bahrain, despite what lots of people might say, you know, it's okay to say that as part of my identity. And this is where I'm coming to. But yeah, so I, I wanted to learn Arabic. And then I, I, I did like um, an English teaching qualification in, in Prague that en- enabled me to teach English abroad. And I, mm. I I thought, you know, the plan was to go to the to somewhere Arabic speaking and learn Arabic whilst teaching English. Um, you know, that's the dream. So I was applying for jobs. I even applied for jobs outside uh, the Arabic speaking world because I still needed a job, right? I mean, I wanted to learn Arabic, right. but, you know, you got to make money at the end of the day. <laughs> so I ended up with like a job offer. And, and, and the Gulf wanted too much experience. And I knew if I went back to the Gulf, it would be very hard to learn Arabic because, you know, unless you're really absorbed in or immersed in, in the place, it's kind of hard to learn, actually. And also, I'd grown up in Bahrain for f- right. 15 years and I hadn't learned Arabic. So I don't know what I thought was going to change. <laughs> I went back. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, all right, guys. Didn't quite stick. I'm back. I got unfinished business, right? So I ended up having this job right. offer in, in Sudan and uh, Indonesia. And I thought, you know what? I'm sure Indonesia would be really fun. Sudan looked pretty, pretty grim, if I'm honest, Uh, but I was like, you know, I'll go to Sudan because I'm pretty sure if I go there, I'll have a better chance of learning Arabic. Um, So, yeah, I I decided to go to Sudan, um, which was, (laughs) I mean, it was an amazing, amazing kind of year. Uh, Very, very difficult in many ways, but also kind of brilliant in others. Uh, But from a language learning perspective, you know, I, I, I really kind of got to grips with Fusar and some Sudanese Arabic. And then, you know, and I thought, yeah, okay, the next step was logical from this. I'm going to continue studying Arabic and learn more about the Middle East in like a formal academic sense, right? And then just so happened that this new, these new master's courses had started in the UK that you could study intensive Arabic for the first year. And then for the second year, you'd go and do like a sort of regular politics history master's. So I went to, uh, I got this on this master's and I spent eight months doing intensive Arabic in Edinburgh University. For uh, four or five hours a day of Arabic, uh taught. And then we had a choice uh, of going to, yeah, I know, it was intense. That was just the class time, right? And then we had to, you know, study. Right?
2: Yeah, and then you get to study outside. But, but honestly, like, this is the strange under, thing.
1: Like... I, I hated learning French at school. I hated it. Um, because I had, I realized in retrospect, I had no motivation to learn French. But mm. when it came to studying Arabic, I was, you know, I'm a kind of a nerd anyway. I mean, I ended up doing a PhD, so I'm kind of nerdy. But, right. <laughs> but I I'd, I'd, I'd do four or five hours a day of Arabic and taught. And then I'd go home and I just, you know, I'd open up my books it, and I yeah. just, and, I, and I'd enjoy it. And that's the weird thing. Yeah. I was, I was obsessed. Um, and I just, I got so into it. And then for four months, uh, we could choose to go to the Middle East. This was before obviously the Arab uprisings and uh, it became very difficult to study formally Arabic in, in, in a lot of Arab countries. So uh, I went with a friend to Syria and we studied in Damascus. I studied at the university um for about five months. And, you know, so again, I was spending more time in, in the Arab world. And again, you know, this is all part of a growing process. And, and and then I, you know, I did, I went back to the UK and I started my PhD. And the, the funny thing is, and at this point I, I had a good grasp of Arabic and I started to realize more and more that uh, this was part of me, you know, it was part of me. I, I'd felt like I'd kind of atoned <laughs> My sins. I'd atone for, <laughs> for not learning Arabic. I mean, I'm, you know, it's not like Arabic is, uh, you know, fluent or amazing. It's, it's pretty decent, but, um, you know, right. I'd, I'd set myself a goal and, and I'd, I'd achieved it, uh, at least, you know, having a, a pretty good grasp of the language.
2: And enough to know, like, to confuse people, yes, if you're, like, in an Arab situation. Exactly. And they just start start speaking Arabic and you bring it out. <laughs> yeah, there's many of
1: those situations came up, you know. Uh, I went hiking with my friend around Lebanon. We went right in the mountains and we did, like, 20 kilometers a day. And we get lost a lot. Ooh. And so there was a lot of asking for That's directions, awesome. you know, and obviously initially right. when you're rocking out, you know, formal Arabic, people are kind of a, like, very, exactly, you know,
0: like poor locals like me. Yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> no, absolutely. Right. Uh, like, you know, asking if there was like a hotel here in this tiny village in Lebanon and then laughing and then get t- right. taken in by like the farming family. <laughs> But it was, you know, it was, was, yeah, it was a learning experience, but yeah, enough to confuse everyone and and, and that's become part of my research. But I think, you know, the real, the real moment for me came, uh, the real moment in in terms of understanding or or recognizing that I was not, I knew that I'd grown up in Bahrain in the Gulf, but like I said, when you, people ask you where you're from and and you, you give the spiel, like it's always that you lived in Bahrain and you're from your passport country, right? So I was from Wales or from England. Mm. Uh, I, I grew up in Bahrain, right? So you're making a clear separations between, you know, your f- bureaucratic identity and, uh, the place where you grew up. Um, right. but this, you know, like, you know, the idea of belonging is important here. Right. So you have identity and belonging. Belonging is a feeling. And I think this notion of belonging became clear, clear and clear and I realized that was the place I missed. You know, when I'd go away, I'd always want to go back to Bahrain. It's where my family lives. Uh, and I right. want to see them. But I think, you know, there was this kind of... My my PhD was on the study of political repression in Bahrain. And, mm. you know, 2011 is when I started my PhD, which is when the, well, the Arab uprising started in 2010, but the Bahraini uprising started in 2011. And I started, and it was incredible, really, because you grow up as an expat. I mean you grow up in you don't necessarily have to be an expert but you grow up in a place that's generally feels safe you feel cloistered it's very kind of segmented you know um you know you 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 sort of live in your compound you know you have your social events uh, i mean bahrain a bit more integrated than that so i don't want to generalize to that extent but you know generally you grow up and right. stealing everything's fine yeah. and then suddenly i i'm sitting in leicester and durham where i'm doing my phd looking at these videos and social media of of you know, huge police violence, uh, absolute brutality in a in a place that I'd grown up and never seen anything like that. You know, I mean, I was aware at right. this point of you know, various inequalities to the extent, especially like exploitation of migrant workers, but this was a whole new level. You know, seeing hundreds of thousands of Bahrainis march in the street, but seeing the sheer brutality, it was a kind of really jarring experience. And at the same time, I was learning very much about Bahrain, and I sort of thought, I I became. You know, I was looking into the history of Bahrain, the history of oppression, the history of colonialism or imperialism, rather in Bahrain, and it gave me this such a deep connection with the country uh, on a kind of academic level, and it raised so many bizarre issues of identity because I lost a lot of the friends that I'd grown up with, right, because of my writing. Because I, I saw I was banned from going back to Bahrain in 2012 because, oh, yeah. So I, I was writing about political repression, right, which is not. the topic the government loves as you can imagine
2: yeah generally yeah. Uh, frowned upon
3: who would have thunk it
1: yeah right and uh, i was so and the reason for that because i was i was i was writing i was writing a blog i was writing Twitter, i was you know i was i was you know i'd wrote a few kind of uh, articles and various publications i'd done this investigation into like a fake journalist which is where the whole fake my interest in fake news started um, so I was gaining a bit of a profile as a quote-unquote troublemaker, but this was on the back of uh, my, the very early days of the uprising. I was—I realized I was very kind of on the fence and apologetic, like saying, "Oh no, you know, that's two sides to every story," kind of stuff. And, right. uh, and and then I realized it really quickly changed. The more I saw brutality, the more it was very clear to me that you know there was this was an incredibly repressive state. And then you know I remember during this whole time losing a lot of my friends, getting one or two messages from people I'd gone to school with. It said that you know i'd uh betrayed them or was a traitor to the regime uh and i was like i'm a traitor i was like i didn't realize i could qualify if i wasn't bahraini um and then
2: <laughs> you're Bahraini enough.
1: yeah exactly no but then i and then i'd have people because that's when i started to meet so many people i didn't know before or connect with people from school who i didn't really know that well at school who got to know my activism right. and get in touch and i was learning more about bahrain social issues especially with sectarianism and you know, like I said, the history of imperialism, and I was making new friends. And then you'd have people saying to me at the same time, like, "Oh, you're, you're, you're so Bahraini." Uh, at the same time, as people saying you're a traitor, right? I was like, "This is—it's so interesting how people construct their notions of identity. Of, in this case, based on their perceived loyalty to the, just, to, to in this yeah. case, a family, <laughs> a ruling family, right?" Yeah. Um, right. And you know, and then you, you know, reading about the histories again, you read about the, you know, I was becoming more aware of the process of. Na- being a national, you know, like Bahrain's nationality laws. And, you know, I just became acutely mm-hmm. aware that there was this huge difference between being a citizen uh, and where you belong. And at the time, Bahrain, the government was also removing the citizenship from lots of Bahrainis on terror charges, right? Uh, which is something the UK right. government do as well. Uh, so, it's, mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. again, it highlights the real strange notion of what it means to be from somewhere uh you know like yeah. you could tell someone who's i don't know they'd had for sake of argument you know their grand great great grandmother was born in bahrain and their family's been born in bahrain since and then suddenly you know they have their passport removed w- what does that right. mean they're not bahraini you know because one of the questions often you get guests when people are like where are you from and you give the spiel like well i was born in bahrain and they're like no where, where, where are you from from yeah. and you're like well it's a long story from? they're like where's your passport
2: what's your passport say so <laughs> <out there. laughs> yeah. what's your mm-hmm. documents show me a document well we were we, yeah no and like we were we actually we had an episode about it where there was some legislation that was like going to be passed it going to be passed about how libyans outside of libya yeah. would have their passport stripped and it was like you no longer have this artifact that says that oh you know like okay i can show you i am bahraini like you know oh you got this accent oh you don't you don't look bahraini it's <laughs> yeah, like yeah. what do you mean yeah. like and then like people who know bahrainis like it say oh you act like you're, you're from bahrain yeah right? exactly. and it's just like Trying to, Go, trying to, yeah. yeah. I love it.
1: Like, you don't look like, you know, imagine like, saying, I mean, you know, there's that classic, there's that classic, uh, that video is like, where are you from? And I think it's, a, uh, it's, it's an American, an American comedian. And there's this, uh, this white guy jogging and, uh, an Asian American woman jogging and they sort of just bump into each other and say, hi, and the white guy's like, where are you from? Uh, and she's like, oh, I'm from like San, San Diego. And he's like, oh, no, 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 no. Where are you, where are you, where you from? And she's like, uh, California. Uh, and then he's you know, like, no, no, no. You know where are your parents from? Like, also San Diego. But where did their parents go from? Oh, Korea. He's like, so, you're, so you're Korean. Uh, and then, like, uh. <laughs> and then she's like, no, no, American. And then she asked him. She's like, oh, where, where, so where are you from? And he's like, oh, I'm just American. Um, you know, <laughs> just American. Yeah, <laughs> just American. And he's like, no, no. But where are your parents? And she's like, does the same thing. And do, do yeah. the yeah, yeah. And she's like, he's like Ireland. I, I and she's like, oh, so you're Irish. Oh, so you're oh, so you're Irish. Irish. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> And again, in any any society there's or any country, I think there's a normative assumption of who belongs, right? And who, it, right. who is the dominant force and power. And often that's reinforced through these structures. So in the US, there's certainly a lot of people who, who think to be American is to be white, right? And obviously that's right. changing, thank God. Um, that <laughs> assumption. But some, some, sometimes the assumption comes through without malice. Most of the time it comes through without malice. Like, the guy asking that yeah. question wouldn't have thought he was being racist or doing anything wrong, right? So if someone says to me, like, you don't look Bahraini or where you're from, from they, there's no malice intended. Um, right. It's it's a completely normal question. Uh, but, you know, at the mm. end of the day, if you're a kid who grows up somewhere and that place shapes your mind, your brain, your emotion, that's and you feel like you belong to it, that's what, it's perfectly valid that's to say you belong to that place, that you're from there, right? Because, you know... What, yeah, what right. as a kid, what's that got to do with what's you know, the the bureauc- bureaucracy got to do with anything? Um yeah. mm-hmm. and so when people say, Oh, you know, you don't look Bahraini or you from what they're saying is, you know, you don't look Arab or you know Right. Which which I, I can understand, but at the same time when you <laughs> I mean, there's so many layers of complexity to this because...
2: <laughs> it's, it's this idea of like, okay, so like, what do you claim as home? Like, what is home to you? Like, what does home smell like? What does home like look like for you? And and it, yeah. you can't... That's not decided by a government body. No, yeah. no, it's
1: like, well, of course not. I mean, it's it's actually outrageous when you think about it. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it, it would be considered offensive in many circles. Like, if someone was to ask you, like, again, in the US, you know, yeah, but where are you really from? I mean... Like I think as TCKs we're so used to this question, it doesn't offend us. We we quite like to know where people are from because we know there's an interesting story there. Um, and I, I think Mohammed and I had this conversation as well. We we like talking about identity. And so we know what people mean when they ask it. Uh, but there's a difference between asking it as an accusation and asking it as a, a question of
0: intrigue, right? We also discuss the fact that we tailor our answer depending on who's asking it. Yeah, if, yeah absolutely. If the person in front of us... If we can feel that they're asking out of intrigue, we're like, well, you know what? I was actually born in Libya yeah, yeah. and then I moved to the sh- Leicester. Yeah, and then I the sh- do, 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 do. But if it's someone who's like, oh, where are you from from? I'm like, oh, I'm from the UK.
1: Yeah, yeah. Just whereabouts Midlands, mate? <laughs> in the US, the US is a country in, to which you can emigrate. The Gulf countries, for the most part, are not countries... Where you can emigrate, right? There's an expectation, and this again turn, comes back to why we went to taught Arabic. There's this expectation that you go there and then you leave. Yeah, you don't you don't emigrate mm. to Bahrain or emigrate to Qatar or Saudi. One
2: it's of the like reasons, a transience, kind of.
1: It's a transience. It's an enforced, legalized transience, and it doesn't come from the migrant workers who go there necessarily. Some of them, yeah, some of them have that expectation. That's what they want. They want to go there and they want to go back. But you have to bear in mind that kids of migrant workers who grew up in these places have a different relationship with their parents, just as any first generation, second generation, third generation, uh, you know, you know, immigrants would, it's normal. Um, So there's a difference between uh, my parents' identity who grew up in the UK, wanting to go back versus the identity of myself and my friends who grew up in that town and have a very different relationship. And the way I talk with my friends about going to Bahrain, it was always home. And often we talked about UK in very negative terms. We always just found it like grim and depressing. We, we didn't want to go back. <laughs> but, you know, there is there is this understanding that, and the government obviously enforced that, of making emigration and immigration difficult. Having said that, there's also an element of privilege that I'm very aware of. You know, there's, uh, you know, if I was given a choice between, say, a British passport and a Bahraini passport, I'd keep the British passport. Because um, it allows me to travel more, go to more places and, gives me more right i I mean in theory it gives me more prospects i say that as a generalization but it it does depend Mm -hmm. i mean there's plenty of people with dual passports there's plenty of you know bahrainis who are rich and wealthy who can do as they please in in many regards i think it's more of a kind of right so I, i it's complicated but the the point is is that we shouldn't be talking about passports like they define our identity um, they dictate mm-hmm. where we can go, and they often dictate the choices or the, the choices that our parents will make for us, that influence our identity. But I think the important thing to remember is that if we strip away layers of bureaucracy in this meaning, we talk at this from a human mm-hmm. level. You are from a place if you grow up in a place. It's it's as simple as that. I think in many ways, right? Because no matter where you're from, so even if I came from like a, I don't know, a, I don't want to say it, it, it makes it difficult because I can't even say Bahraini family. Because if i say bahraini mm-hmm. family then you know what i mean you know what, exactly identify? what i mean what what, what <laughs> you know <laughs> yeah, you know yeah, it's yeah, yeah. like uh, yeah what does, what does that mean and <laughs> yeah. you know because my parents wouldn't identify as bahraini so i can't say bahraini family uh i don't right. identify solely as bahraini either
2: i i, I just think it's interesting like uh, the, I, I feel like a good summation is like the people who reached out to you saying that you're you're so bahraini or that you are a traitor um like are people conference. from like all over the world right and they weren't saying like oh let me see your passport first like it's like we grew up together there is a community we, we kind know. of built around yeah. this this experience shared like like zeitgeist almost where it's just like this is this is the what we're going towards this is the life that we have to live um and so like that's not a paper that's not even your parents that's not it's just like, that's like a shared that, yeah it's space. like a shared human experience yeah, yeah.
1: Um, absolutely uh, and defining for, for them to be Bahraini in that sense was, was to be loyal to that particular upbringing that we had and an implicit part of that at the time that wasn't clear was yeah. acknowledging that the regime or the current regime were were the legitimate regime that was part of it somehow, uh, which is really interesting. Yet yeah. for the opposition, the ones who said, yeah, you're a true Bahraini were the ones who were opposing the regime. So in a way for them, right. the yeah. identity marker was about solidarity. With them, because that was a, a different truth, right? So people often yeah. project what they believe to be an identity onto others uh, for various reasons and instrumentalize it uh, for for their yeah. right for for whatever reason, right?
2: And that ties nicely to the adapting point that you made earlier.
1: Yeah, but well, this is this is it, and, and I just real and I, and I had been realizing for some time that you know what does it mean to be from somewhere? We, you know, when we talk about this whole notion of people having their citizenship stripped. Uh, you know, in a place as well where people who come in to to fight on behalf of the government get citizenship, they call naturalization, mm. and their their citizenship is therefore contingent on their loyalty to the regime and defending the regime, right? So the whole notion of citizenship became this currency about loyalty to a particular family,
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, the ruling family of Bahrain, and and that's for me made me really reject the idea of citizenship because citizenship became such an obviously constructed thing. I, I know it is anyway in any yeah. sense. But it was so clear of how citizenship was being utilized as this tool. Then it strips away any of the pretense that actually citizenship is a good way of identifying who you are. Uh, and then I sort of realized, oh my God, yeah, I'm I, I, Bahraini. And I mean, what it's a word, Bahraini. But all I'm saying when I say that is that I grew up in this place, and this place shaped me. The right. experiences that I had shaped me. The particular set of experiences that are quite unique and shared, shared cultural, shared. Social experiences of a certain group of people who grew up in that country are things that I identify with, mm-hmm. and yeah. things that are a part of me, and and that's what I'm saying, you know. Right. Uh, that's all I'm saying. Uh, it's it shouldn't be a contentious claim.
2: Right, but it's hard to say that when someone asks you, like, "Oh, where are you from?" It's like, yeah. "Oh, well, you know, there's this soul share, <laughs> yeah, yeah. human was. identity." Yeah, it's like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, like chapter one.
0: Yeah, it's really arbitrary, though, isn't it? Don't you think? Uh, and I think we yeah. mentioned this when we were discussing this in person, where. It's like the people who went over to England. The English today are not the original inhabitants. But when they went over, there was almost like a a deadline. And then they said, okay, anybody who came into the country after this day is not English. You are an immigrant. Well, so are you. You just happened to immigrate before me. So it depends on how far back do you want to go. And it's, it's such a bizarre thing that we've constructed. If you were... In Absolutely. this country, at a specific day, or if you have this piece of paper, then you can identify as this nationality. Otherwise, where you from? From.
2: I was reading an article around uh, how, like, third culture kids, um, by necessity, have to develop empathy, right? So you have this idea of like babies growing up when they hit someone that's they're not thinking oh i'm going to experience that oh it's not nice to hit someone because it would be not nice if it hit me right um as a as a tck you kind of learn that lesson by growing up and and meeting all sorts of different kinds of people and developing this empathy um because like you recognize that there are people that are so disparate and like who grow up so differently but at the same time um there are commonalities in Mm -hmm. kind of the human experience um and so it's really interesting just that that warmth that you're talking about I, i i did like a study abroad in chile and it was me and an american guy and our host dad um was like you know like the americans they're like they're cold, but you, you know, like, you're, oh, Arab, you know, you have, like, the commonality, and it's, like, oh, well, you know, that's kind of a stereotype, and he was, like, a really cool guy, and he's, like, very worldly, too, but it was just, like, this, this, He's projecting onto your Arabness, you know, it's, like, it must be an Arab. Yeah, exactly, (laughs) exactly, but I, I, honestly, I think it was more along the lines of just, like, like a TCK thing, like, I feel like this casual, um, like, Oh, I know you from somewhere in this that happens. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I, I sometimes wonder if it was like a, a you know, another thing that we you know, I, upon reflection as I got older I realized about the community that I grew up in. And I don't know if this is again a common a common thing in, in all T C K communities is but the town that we grew up in, you socialized with people of all ages, including adults, at all the kind of gatherings which are often at people's houses. And so something, and I, again, I, this might be a specific point, but people have often related to this, that, you know, the, the kids from Awali where we grew up were, you know, you could talk to anyone. And part of that was because you socialized with people who were like in their forties when you were sort of either 13, 14 or whatever. Right. Um, and that became a normal thing. And maybe that in some communities that aren't TCK communities is a common thing too, uh, But I think in in many places, certainly what I was told in the UK, it wasn't all that common, certainly not, uh, not common in the past 10 or 20 years. So I, I think there's something about the way the community existed that shaped our personality. But I do think that warmth is something that TCKs often have. It's a, yeah, it's, it's a really important quality. It's quite hard to define. Right,
2: But I think it exists and it's not to be like elitist or anything. It's just like, oh, you have to well, have this. No. Yeah, I mean, you we're kind of better. No, but uh, it's, it's, to, it's it's kind of we, talking. We are about
0: joking, this. but we're not.
2: Yeah. <laughs> same, well, same I, I had this friend who said like, oh, you know, you certain kinds of people like they who experience like deep and life changing grief growing up like they are right. more emotionally like mm-hmm. uh, aware and emotionally kind of right. cognizant at an older age and not i took offense to that because i was like i had a pretty happy childhood i don't know about that like <laughs> i'm pretty emotionally on the level but um I, it's it's this kind of thing where it's like it is kind of like you know maybe not full trauma but like mini trauma of just like starting re- restarting starting restarting like having well, That a, is considered a yeah.
1: uh, a thing yeah i think even the literature points to that 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 constant uh displacement and in terms of attachments you get is a form of a form of trauma but even empathy empathy i think empathy can be shaped by traumatic experiences uh and traumatic experiences might not also shape empathy but i think there's something about being um, exposed to people from different parts of the world with different traditions different practices it generates empathy in its own way because empathy is what empathy is about fundamentally identifying and understanding and sympathizing with people right to be truly empathetic to do that on a human level, you do it irrespective of where someone's from, and I think you, you, you by being a TCK, you see everyone as human. You, yep. It's a disequalizing effect. Yeah. And I think you can't really have empathy without treating people equally. So I think that's the ultimate empathy generator, right? Is, right. Is just being exposed to difference. Yeah.
0: Which, mm. which is why when you go to larger cities where people are exposed to people from different cultures, the level of understanding is a lot higher. Whereas if you if you were to go to mm. smaller towns the stairs last longer the level of they understanding burn. yeah the level of understanding mm. plummets and the the knowledge of the other person is is almost zero so if you don't look like them it all of a sudden i remember i went to south france uh, to visit a friend his mom is french and his dad is english and i was the darkest person in the town i swear to god and when i went shopping with him it wasn't like, oh, my God, what is this? What is this? It was just like, oh, he looks different. And they kept staring. Right.
2: And I Not don't know malicious. whether they were
0: conscious. Yeah, I don't know whether they were conscious of it, but they did stare a lot. Because of that lack of exposure to the, the other person or someone who's different to you, otherization was very strong. Uh, but like I said, if you were to go to a larger city where people are exposed to people like you anyway, like when I'm in London... I do not feel out of place at all because I know people have seen people like me they've they've heard my name before they've they've seen they know everything about my religion pretty much because they have friends and they grew up with people who are arabs and muslims and so for them to see another arab muslims like oh okay cool no worries yeah it's
1: it's like Ali, but you know I think I mean this this plays out like you know in in like Brexit for example you know that you're more likely to vote for Brexit uh, if you were in a rural community who's was less exposed yeah. to difference yeah. and it's 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 just the way it is you know it's um it's the not the fear of again it's other, not a structural thing yeah, yeah. yeah. exactly the, fear no, of the other is often embedded in in the way people live and even in a geographical sense uh which is which is sad but you know it's uh, it's it's the reality
3: no yeah here in the us you have um the more metropolitan areas are more liberal and then the farther you go the more conservative and less tolerant um the humans are yeah isn't it ironic
0: yeah. how you can be less tolerant and yet know less about the other person yeah
3: yeah
0: your lack of knowledge has made you less tolerant Intolerant. well it it makes you more susceptible i think there's that notion of the unknown it makes you more susceptible
1: to be afraid yeah. of the unknown i think it's quite yeah. normal human behavior right to be afraid of the unknown and once you don't ex- you are not exposed to that it, it's easier for example when people see things in the media to have those notions of the unknown manipulated Mm. Uh, and exploited, and yep. that's where the the fear comes from. I remember watching this incredibly powerful documentary. I can't remember exactly. I think it was Louis Theroux, but he was dealing with these. Uh, he was interviewing these white supremacists or far right kind of group in the U.S. And you, you speak to one of them, and then throughout the course of the program, this guy was sort of you know being fairly Islamophobic and whatnot. And then at the end, Louis Theroux introduced them to this. I think it was a Syrian refugee family, and they had a very young daughter, I think, and uh, she'd lost, I believe, a limb uh, in the war. And when this guy met uh, this uh, kind of white nationalist, it just, it just changed totally. It was the strangest. It was, I mean, it was an amazing thing to see, right. you know, cause he was seeing this kid, this family, and it's just like, it stripped away any of those prejudices. and he just like, this is just a normal family. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and his empathy was kind of created. So that lack of contact is, it's so damaging. I think to people's empathy or it can be exploited so easily
0: right it's like daryl davis the guy who converted 200 kkk members and he just said listen let's sit down and let's have a conversation and over 30 years he's managed to convince 200 ex-kkk members that this is not the way. Like, this this amount of hate is not healthy. And get to know me as a human being. I think
1: hate, though. I think there's something about hate or anger. I think for some it becomes this... I don't know. It's like not a drug. It, there's something weirdly appealing for some people about that anger. It, it's it's hard to explain. I think there's something dark and primordial.
3: Yeah, or, or, like, without it, who would they be or what would they be kind of thing. Like, I, it's like you know, it becomes so embedded in their um, identity and, like, generations' worth of of identity. And so sometimes even even with that, it's so embedded in their ideologies to the point where when you do try to even have a conversation with them, it's like, well, this is, I was born to hate X group or, or the other. And so sometimes, like, even conversation doesn't, doesn't fall through, fall through especially or it,
2: or it ends up with like oh you're one of the good ones but the rest of them oh gosh. yeah
3: yeah That's that one yeah yeah, god
0: you're not like normal muslims yeah. what the hell does that mean yeah what does that what? mean you're like the ones i've never met right yeah, no, like you're one of the, good like good the ones i've never met
3: you, that was like actually like sec- you're literally
1: the only muslim you've met <laughs>
3: <laughs> you're the only good muslim i tr- or you're the only muslim i trust
1: yeah um, yeah and I the only know. one i've met
2: there's this whole theme of, like, not trying to be malicious, but, like, actively displacing someone. But not trying to be malicious, but, but like, you know, tokenizing and you. not like, and, and none of it yeah. comes out of this, like, we talk about hate a little bit. Like, the hate's there, but it's not when in these situations, you know? So it's hard to, like, pin down, I think, sometimes.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's funny how people will, yeah, the, I always find that interesting when people have an experience with, say, in this case, a Muslim. They've probably not met many Muslims in their life, or any. And, and their first reaction would be like, you're one of the good ones, as opposed to the logical <laughs> thought isn't, oh, I've met a Muslim and he's nice. Maybe all Muslims are nice. No, no, no. I met a Muslim. This must be an exception. It's like, it's really bizarre.
2: <laughs> I also read that there's, uh, I forget what it's called. It's like a reflection bias or, or something along the lines. Anyway, so it's this idea that this deeply set truth that you have um, gets challenged and giving up that truth and giving and and giving ground on that to understand someone else is like it, it's the same process as like going through the stages of grief, right? Like mm. you you have this this safe idea of of how everything is, and then that's shattered, and now you're you know denial, bargaining, like all of that. Yeah, yeah. Because you you can't like. To admit to this is to admit that everything I've been doing has been wrong, and moreover, right. like I did that, you know that that's the, those are right. things I said, uh, and, and so it's it's interesting that
1: yeah, um, you wonder if ego is involved. Right? I always wonder oh, yeah, this when yeah. anyone has to confront their wrong. It's a very strange because to, to you, it's almost like you know when you think even on I'm beyond this kind of a existential thing. You know, you get in an argument with someone and right. you realize they're right. It's mm. hard to admit you're wrong. Yeah, <laughs> and I, I, that must be some deep-rooted thing, right? This this ego. Yeah. Especially no. when it comes to something really kind of important uh, about identity, and yeah. what shaped you.
2: I don't know why, but it's become kind of like I'm wrong, but thus I am weak, and I am like that. That's been a very mm, like right. I, I don't know if it's like a global idea, but I've seen it in America, a lot.
0: This is the really weird thing. In any other part of our lives, if we are the same person twenty years later that's chalked up as a failure but yeah. if for example a politician comes out and changes his mind because he's been you know introduced to some new evidence which lo and behold might actually change his mind no oh he's flip-flopping ah he's not a strong politician the public ingrained yeah. that into them so now any politician and i guarantee you i guarantee you 100 percent, boris johnson knows for a fact that brexit was an awful idea but he cannot publicly state it because he will be crucified Mm -hmm. following your departure from bahrain and your immediate Mm -hmm. uh, ban of returning you started researching misinformation in the region and how it's used online even when we've met in person we've spoken about the bots that you've come across on Twitter, is that something you always intended to get into, or is it, did you just happen to come across it through your research?
1: Yeah. I mean, I was, cause I was, I've been tracking what's going on in Gulf Twitter since like 2011. So I've been quite attuned to strange things or I, I get tuned to anomalies, you know, because when you know something or you're familiar with something, things that are strange stand out. Hmm. So I, I, mean, I was just looking at Bahrain one day and I started to see that there was loads of strange activity on this hashtag. After the government had just, weirdly enough, removed the citizenship from this uh, cleric in Bahrain. Um, And, you know, they removed it and claimed he was a terrorist, which is obviously not true. And then all these accounts started saying, yeah, he's a Shia terrorist. Um, And, you know, it was was just really interesting to see that all these kind of odd accounts uh, were sort of diluting any legitimate debate or discussion with all this clear propaganda and i was like "Hmm, that's interesting and then i started to study the accounts and realized that you know they were all created on the same day they were they had a very limited discourse and that's how i basically got into this kind of social media manipulation space uh, by looking at those kind of accounts and the more i looked into it the more i realized this is such a big problem like any discussion about in arabic or on the gulf was just dominated and by, by lots of bots. Anytime there's a controversial topic, for example, Saudi killing civilians in Yemen, or, you know, um, I don't know, since critics within, it was mostly coming from Saudi critics within Saudi criticizing a government decision, you'd see all these bots swing into action. So right, it was obviously that it would be used to drown out debate and as a censorship tool. So I became really fascinated by that. And that's what I've, I've, I mean, I work on bots, but you know, there's trolls, bots are obviously automated accounts, those trolls are real humans who, who, attack others and there's more and more evidence suggests that a lot of that those attacks are are people who are working for specific either companies or or the state who engage in attacks to, to intimidate or silence people. So this whole murky word of world of social media censorship that includes bots is something I've been interested in It's part of what is called digital authoritarianism the use of digital technology for the, the purpose of social control. that can include uh, social media intimidation, propaganda, but it can also include surveillance and those other kind of things. Um, So that's always something I've always been interested in is the use of media in particular as a tool of control. Um, And yeah, so bots is just one aspect of the multitude of different aspects of uh, digital authoritarianism.
0: You even created your own bot, right, to kind of counter some of the trolls. I did. <laughs> yeah i
1: this is i'm not i'm not I'm that technical a guy i mean I, I use some technical tools but i'm not really a programmer but i did uh i found this relatively easy way of creating a bot where you just uh you could give it instructions you 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 set up a twitter api uh, and you could set up an account and then link it to this simple set of instructions so what i did uh i created i was following i was copying this idea that was i think was done in the us where someone created a bot to call out racism so if someone said something racist, the bot would be like, hey, do you think that's racist? Um, hmm. And so what I did, I programmed it to, to identify any particular form of sectarian hate speech. You know, there's common terms that are used uh, in sectarianism. And if anyone used those on Twitter, the bot would automatically reply to them saying, hey, do you think this is a sectarian hate speech? And the reason it asked the question is because it's, uh, it's you tend to get a better response than or like a confrontation, right? And it's right. just getting people to think about it as opposed to, Making accusation, um, but yeah, Twitter suspended it. So <laughs> too, uh, yeah. too active. I don't think it was. And yeah, that's yeah. the it biggest irony,
0: right? It's the biggest <laughs> irony of all. No, it's
1: such an irony. It's it just makes me laugh. I mean, I just laugh at when I look at all the crap that I uh, sift through and all the hate and uh, platform manipulation, and then they suspend like a bot. And her name was even a pun. It was an Arabic pun. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, the name was Lala. So Lala, like as in, it's actually, I think it's a Persian word for tulip, but Mm -hmm. sometimes used in Arabic, but it was Lala Karahia, right? So it was a pun on no to hatred, right? So Lala Karahia. And um, yeah, so, you know, it was just like an innocent anti-hate bot. And And all it did was ask that
0: question. That's
1: all it did. Yeah. That's all it did. See, people must have reported it. I'm being harassed by this bot asking if I'm being (laughs) sectarian. Right. Um, did you have any yeah, f- interesting sometimes. follow-ups? I did back, in the, it's been a while. To be honest with you, I, di- I definitely had some interactions with it. Uh, that some people did reply to it, um, but there was I didn't save them, and it, because it was suspended, I don't know if I have. I don't think I have access to it anymore. But people did respond. Hmm. Uh, a lot of the time they didn't, um, but yeah, lots of the time they did as well. You know, and the thing is, I mean, I labeled it a bot because that was Twitter in terms of conditions. You label something a bot if it's a bot, mm-hmm. and then some people would be like reply and then realize it was a bot and they'd be like oh you're just a bot like or like as in haha this is just a bot and i was like it's not a trick it's not a secret that it's a bot it's in the and bio says it's yeah. A bot. <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly it's not trying to trick you um you idiot uh, but, you know
2: <laughs> well it's, it's, on it's the internet right it's interesting because that's like Um, that was the whole discourse after kind of the Trump election, the echo chambers, everyone's kind of in their own part of the internet and they don't hear anything else. So like those kind of questions don't pop up and like, there is a a lot of social manipulation. I, I'm sure you've had someone talk to you about this, but have you heard about like the Cambridge Analytica stuff? And is that something that is kind of connected to the research that you're doing with like, like online? Yeah, I mean,
1: Absolutely. So, I mean, Cambridge Analytica themselves. So their parent company is SCL, right? Social Limited, and they actually had a contract with the UAE Supreme Media Council. So in, in the Gulf Crisis, wow. Basically, Alexander Nix, who is who is one of the big cheeses in Cambridge Analytica, he's literally signed a contract with uh with the UAE Supreme Media Council to do a specific campaign branding uh to boycott Qatar, right? So it was mm-hmm. a campaign that was wow. essentially. Uh, situated around boycott Qatar and, and it involved for example portraying Qatar as a terrorist supporting state and so what you have really ultimately is again one of these for-profit companies PR mercenaries as as they're called or i call them uh essentially profiting off sowing division and uh, promoting in, in a way conflict and tension in a region that's already got its fair share of it All right so yeah and I look at it can be in or at least SEO social the parent company was directly involved in the gulf crisis um, and there's lots of companies like this right um it's pretty standard it's sadly it's very kind of standard kind of business behavior it's um you know the reputation laundering industry is essentially the propaganda for higher industry um right i mean it's alarming when you think about it i mean one of my you know if we go back with all the age of social media i mean look at the, the, the gulf war the the, the the u.s-led coalition decision to go into quote, liberate Kuwait um, in 1990 was premised a lot on this, the testimony of a, a girl called Nuria, uh before Congress. And she claimed that she had seen Iraqi soldiers come into Kuwaiti hospital and take babies out of incubators. Yeah. Um, but this, but she was actually coached by Hills and Knowlton, which is a very well-known PR company. Yeah. Uh, and it was found that she, this never happened. And that Naria was actually a member of the Kuwaiti ruling family. Um, and they even create front groups. And this is this is kind of standard practice for a lot of these PR companies, right? Uh, I'm not saying that the decisions liberate q or whatever is wrong or right. That's not my right. point. My point is that these companies uh, are often responsible for trying to shape these narratives that like legitimize foreign policy in some somewhere or another. Uh, and we see that in the Gulf and in Washington, if you're in Washington, there's hundreds of lobbying companies or London in particular, right. where companies do work for dictators, you know, Right, um, yeah. bell pottinger and, is a great example
2: but it's interesting because um the way that these kind of uh organizations work is that they they attack this this community this um this uh common human experience like we were talking about when when you were trying to define kind of like where are you from from and like you, kind of your experience of identity yeah. like it's nationalist and i uh entities empowering kind of these companies to do to attack the the community specifically it's not like oh we're attacking your nationalist yeah. idea we're like we're 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 doing right. it. yeah it's just like they they know how to affect us but like at the same time there's no direct way to affect like like uh the the over the government kind of force right the the overseeing force yeah it, that's really interesting yeah
1: but well, it's just terror it's terrifying isn't it how you know, like what some some dude in sitting in his office in London in Mayfair was like, "Yeah, man, there's this conflict going on." I mean, it's like arms companies, right? It's like, "Yeah, we can make money out of this. Uh, how do we do it?" You know, all oh, these guys don't right. like these guys, so let's do this hate campaign, rile up social tensions. Who gives a damn if this leads to conflict or anything? Which you know we've seen, I think, happen in Kenya and uh, places like that. Right? Um, and, you know, and it's it's and it's playing with the essence of identity too, right? By, by making someone hate a group or try and make someone hate a group, you're essentially encouraging them to demonize a specific group of people. Yeah. Um, we see this a lot in the region, especially with Iran, is there's, so, there's a lot of resources put into, I mean, regardless of whether you, you, I mean, Iran is a human rights abusing regime, there's no questions about it. But there's like a whole industry now that, is trying to, Well, it certainly was under Trump trying to essentially promote war with Iran. I mean, one of the most shocking things that came out of it was there was a State Department was caught essentially funding a project where people would go on Twitter and attack journalists who were not sufficiently critical of the Iranian regime, right? They would literally attack them. And then this came out as being true, and they shut down the program. But this is the a U.S. State Department actually right. trolling people on Twitter, basically, because they're not showing a hard line enough on it on on the iran or trump's iran stance i mean talk about kind of um, trying to shape not just shape the narrative but if you're shaping the narrative you're arguably shaping people's perceptions of reality their right. thought diet what they consume and therefore potentially their behaviors
2: so is your research around kind of understanding exposing and interacting with like social community ma- manipulation via social media or is it like with the goal is the and i guess it's a separate question is it aimed at finding countermeasures to it or just like the the countermeasure is the awareness
1: yeah i mean i think it's more the latter so i i do the monitoring i try to document it where possible and then i you know make my results for my investigations public again to raise awareness you know um because my experience has taught me for example. Like, you can, a lot of this, in order to do with a lot of the, the manipulation that we see in the region, you know, it would be the responsibility of Twitter to have better measures in place. But Twitter, you know, I make an argument in my book that's coming out in September on this, is that there's an element of, you know, digital. Plug away. Yeah, no worries. Uh, I'll just, uh, <laughs> <laughs> digital authoritarianism. But, um, sorry, digital orientalism. And, and this came out recently, you know, there was a, a former employee of Facebook who basically said that Facebook took longer to respond to complaints in regions that weren't seen as uh, would seen as there wouldn't be a PR nightmare for Facebook. Right. So the argument I make is that for places like the Middle East and the Arabic speaking world, so long as Twitter are profiting, um, there's no need to take action on say the regimes that generate the most profits. I mean, Twitter's biggest market in the Middle East is Saudi Arabia by far. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's little political pressure them to do much about manipulation in Saudi. it's not like iran where you know america have a more hostile stance to iran so if there's iranian manipulation they'll jump on yeah. that because it's political pressure so it's kind of they let it be so i know you know i can my skill set is more focused on just exposing these uh, campaigns and you know sort of uh raising awareness about them i was at an eu kind of uh, round table on disinformation and tackling disinformation and facebook and twitter invited and facebook sent a guy who was very proactive and very willing to listen to often a lot of criticism twitter just didn't send anyone oh Um, wow they're too cool
0: there is something which is on my mind right because what happens with third culture kids when we meet together i don't know if, if you guys have experienced this as well but when we when we when third culture kids meet together and for some reason it's it's like Three and above, so if there are at least three people, space time just seems to merge. Space and and to right. I've I, I look at my watch, and for some reason the the, the the hands on the clock are just spiraling out of control, and you
3: know, and I
0: find it really difficult to tell what time it is.
3: You were a hundred percent in luck. You're having a it's, good time. Let me just let me just let me just. Um, I always happen to have a time, and
0: um, yeah. Okay.
3: Um And it's, um... Uh...
2: <laughs> just do it. Just do it. Just do it. Just Stop do it. holding ah! up. Just do it.
3: Well, Muhammad's made just like to let you know just what say it is. It, it actually, as a, matter of, hmm, as a matter of fact, it's actually question time. Oh, gosh. <laughs> I
1: see what you did there, guys. Oh,
2: God. Yeah. <laughs> it's that bad every time. That was
3: actually quite quick. That was actually not that bad. I'm pretty impressed. I I'm okay. caught on. As soon as he started saying, you know, like, when third culture kids, blah, blah, I was I was there. I was I was just waiting for him to stop so I can just jump in. Right. So when the revolution in mm-hmm. Bahrain happened, um, did you feel... A certain connection to the events, and um, were you engaged in what was going on? Yes, no, maybe so, and why? Yeah,
1: absolutely. I mean, I was, yeah, I started my PhD, but you know, you don't know how you're going to respond to such an event until it happens. And I was so emotionally invested, and again, I met a lot of other people in my situation. And you know, you just have your phone constantly on. You know, you get notifications in the middle of the night, and you wake up, and there'd be some dramatic event happening, and you sort of pulled into it, and you know, again, this is why I realized part of, part of the, you know, part of feeling attached to Bahrain was just how I felt it, so affected by what was going on, like emotionally, the, you know, to the extent that, you know, I was, a, a group of people i again met through doing my research. We, we set up an NGO called Bahrain watch the document, like usually human rights abuses and, and that kind of thing. Um, so very invested in it, Yeah. You become an activist. I, I'd never. People describe me as an activist. I never really describe myself as one, but, you know, it's an identity thing. But, yeah, I became very much an activist for this kind of cause, the social justice cause. I cared about it deeply.
2: Do you think the role of uh, of social media kind of across the Arab Spring influences your work now?
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, no, absolutely. Like, uh, that's when, you know, my I, my PhD initially was on the role of social media in Bahrain, and then it became the role of social media as a tool of repression. So that's really kind of timing really shaped how I kind of viewed it you know I was never optimistic about it
3: thank you so much for listening in we look forward to hearing more from y'all on our Twitter and Instagram pages both third culture block with a three this is we saw Jibreel
0: Ahmed Mustafa Mohammed Ismail and Marco and Jones.